Hello, this is Pastor Gordon Runyon from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico. I'm pleased to present to you this recording of a session at our Freedom Conference 2016. Our featured speaker was Mr. Bojidar Marinov. May you be richly blessed as you listen. Amen. What I did earlier today was <clears throat> use the word idolatry for something that normally our churches today are not using it for, and that is about political concepts, about political ideas, about certain ideas of government, about certain practices of government. <clears throat> and using that religious concept, uh, this, that religious concept is usually used from our pulpits when we talk about direct worship to some foreign gods. You know, we, we, we use that concept when People worship uh, Buddha or Muhammad. We, we use it about Islam or uh, Eastern religions and so far. And here I am using it in a way that you don't normally hear American pastors using it. I use it about the government. I use it about the concept of government that we have. Uh, and, and the reason is, the reason we don't hear that from the pulpits is because our pulpits have become dualistic. And what is dualistic? That means uh, they have, they live in two worlds that are separate from each other and they never meet. One is the world of our personal worship. Uh, we stand before God and uh, in, 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 in we worship God in our churches. And at the moment we, the moment we, uh, we step out this door, we have another world where all these concepts of worship don't work there. There's this completely different world. Our religion doesn't apply there. And we've heard that so many times and there are even whole theology is developed on that concept that Christianity is something that happens in the church, in the sanctuary, you know, from the pulpit, but then it, it's not something that happens out there. And whatever happens out there, if we have any involvement as Christians out there, it is just to be good Republican voters. You know, and if you're not a good Republican voter, you know, uh, then you're not a good Christian out there. Because, and it doesn't matter if that Republican Party applies those biblical principles, because we don't believe biblical principles apply out there. We get to a point where the unbelievers out there in the world take biblical concepts like family and start twisting them. And from a man and a woman who have, uh, who have given a vow, who have made a covenant before God, family now becomes two perverts of the same sex being a family. Family is now twisted to mean something else. And then, you know, the law is twisted to mean something else. And then we say, where did that come from? Well... We seldom blame ourselves, but the truth is, it comes from the church. The church had a head start on the sodomites in, re, uh, in redefining institutions, and we have had a head start on it for about 100 years. It's, well, it's not with the family, but it was with the government. About 100 years ago, we started preaching a separate, a different concept of the government. A concept of the government that the Bible never even talked, talks about. A concept of the government that the Bible only assigns to the pagan nations around Israel, but it never assigned to Israel. It never mandated such, such kind of government in Israel. And the funny thing is, we knew better than that. We had a better government than that. It's not like we are some uh, nation out there in Asia or in Africa that never had any Christian heritage and never had any you know, any historical government that was biblical. We know better. We still have those documents with us. We still teach our children these documents. We still call them our founding documents. And yet we never go back to them. And I'm not saying that these documents were perfect. I'm not saying the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or any of those documents were necessarily perfect or Christian, but there was in them a seed of, of what the biblical government is. And America for a while followed that kind of government. But we have surrendered 
to the enemies of God, and we have started preaching from the pulpits a perverted form of government. A form of government that is just as perverted, and we have it today around us, as two sodomites being a family. And unless we start changing that concept of government, unless we understand what is the biblical government, and what is the difference between the government that is in the law of God and the government that pagans establish, we're not going to be able to restore America, and we're not going to be able to leave a world of liberty and justice for our children. I want to go back to Revelation 13 this morning, that we're at this morning. Now I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read one key verse there. One key verse that today defines exactly, like I said, defines exactly what a beastly government is. And these, uh, and these are verses 16 and 17. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand onto their foreheads. Now don't imagine any mystical things here. Again, that mark doesn't have to be you know, some uh, barcode or, or electronic chip and all that. It can be your concealed carry license. And that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the, uh, save, uh, he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. A beastly government is a government that has control over actions that biblically are perfectly legitimate, perfectly legal. They're not a crime, they're not a sin, they're not something that should subject a man to another man. There's something that a man should naturally do every day because this is what the Bible says, that we have a dominion covenant. We have a mandate to subdue the earth for the glory of God. And part of that mandate is what? Is buy and sell, because that economic activity that we are supposed to do is part of that dominion covenant, original dominion covenant. What do we see here? A, biblical, uh, a beastly government is a government that takes over exactly that part of man that is supposed to subdue the earth for God's glory, and it doesn't stop man from doing it, but it only allows him to do it by permit. by permit. The way God controls the world, the way God rules the world, is through the hearts of man. God doesn't need to give man a command to eat. Don't have to give them permission to eat. There is no outside permit. You don't go to God and sign a document that you're going to be paying your taxes or you have paid your taxes to God. And God is not somebody who gives you that that gives you permissions and licenses and so on. What he does is he gives you a huge area of free movement. And there are lines at the end of that area, boundaries. And he says, don't cross over those boundaries. The reason he's got the boundaries there is because there's precipice on the other side. There's an abyss on the other side. But within that area, within these boundaries, you're absolutely free to do whatever you think you should be doing before God. As long as you don't cross those boundaries. When you're in a God's economy, you buy and you sell and you work and you stuff your body with whatever stuff you want. You may be sinful, but God is not stopping you. And God does not allow other men to stop you. You may engage in any kind of uh, pleasurable activities as long as they are not beyond those boundaries. So any kind of stuff, any games, any, any work, any satisfaction uh, you know, of family, of, of being with people, of uh, you know, love, joy, I mean even sadness in uh, you know, literature, art, 
All this is permitted in God's kingdom. After all, he only gave 600-something laws. Okay? And all these laws have to do with, do not do this. Enjoy anything you want. Do not, do, do not go beyond those boundaries. Do not murder a person. Do not try to involve in sexual activities outside of your family. Do not steal other people's stuff. Other than that, as long as you have it, as long as it's yours, legitimately yours, it's yours and God is not stopping you. We see the same principle, the same threat of a beastly government in Samuel 8. And I want to go back there again and look at it. So now we have more than that. He says he will take your uh, manservants in verse 16. He will take your manservants and your maidservants your, and, and your best young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. So not only your work is now on a permit regime, only if you're allowed to do it, you're also under a beastly government going to be forced to do somebody else's work. The work of the powerful man. Selective service. You're going to be forced to do the work of other men. Not only that, whatever you do, you're permitted to do, he will take tenth of what you produce. So we see a government that step by step is trying to control people. We call sometimes what we have today in America rule of law. A rule of law is not what we have today. A rule of law is that huge field where you can do anything you want and you're only limited by those boundaries on the end so that you don't fall off the cliff. What we have today in America is the rule of man. A rule by permit. A rule by the whim of powerful men. And we have agreed to it. The biblical government, and now let me start with this. This concept of government reappeared in the Western world in the 18th century by the men who today we call the philosophs, the French philosophs of the Enlightenment. <clears throat> Among them was a guy called Montesquieu. Montesquieu came up with a concept of government that today is pretty much at the foundation of all civil government. And he was not a Christian. He actually said uh, the, that, that uh, the relationship between man must be controlled by man. The laws of God must control only the relationship between man and God. Okay, is there a problem with this statement? There's a serious problem with this statement. Because what if men decide that it's okay to murder each other or sell, send each other to concentration camps or just kill all the Jews or just take care, I mean, just take some people's produce and, you know, give it to everybody else. Montesquieu developed his idea that for a civil government to be a good civil government, according to his ideas, it had to be, it had to have division of powers. And he divided those powers into executive, legislative, and judicial. So we got to have three branches of government. And today, even our kids, when they study social studies, you know, so, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, social studies, right? Yes. Okay. We study that about America, right? We're the ideal country. We have that kind of government, right? We have three branches, and they're independent of each other, right? Right? Right, yeah. <laughs> they are. The courts never do what Obama wants them to do, right? And Congress is always controlling that executive government, right? Especially Republicans in Congress. They never vote and support, you know, to support Obama's policies, right? Well, our kids are learning that stuff today. They're learning it in school, even in homeschool. Some of our textbooks, when I saw one of our, my kids' textbooks, it said, 
you know, the United States is a government that was established, you know, separation of powers. Okay, what's that separation of powers? Separation of powers between executive, judicial, and uh, legislative. All I said is, out, file this in the wrong file, we're going to find another textbook. And if I can't find another textbook that doesn't say that, I better have you not study United States government, but I will teach you what actually United States was established as in the beginning. So we have that today. We're teaching our kids today, and, uh, and we ourselves believe that that is the kind of government we're supposed to have. Without understanding that that separation of powers that Montesquieu gave was not the biblical separation of powers, and in fact what Montesquieu wanted to do is take every single kind of power, focus it on the, on the uh, civil government, and leave it there so that the family is deprived of any authority in the society, so that the church is deprived of any authority in the society, so that uh, private institutions are deprived of any authority in the society. Before Montesquieu, Europe had a really, really, really decentralized and, uh, and, and uh, a government of separated powers. In fact, powers were separated in Europe, in, in, in Christian Europe before Montesquieu, both horizontally and vertically. And first of all, nobody had legislative powers. You got to understand this. Legislative powers, the ideas, the, the modern idea that man will get together, fallen man will get together and will come up with what is good, is a pretty modern idea. And it came only when we started losing our Christian foundations. You take one man's wickedness, multiplied by another man's wickedness, multiplied by another man's wickedness, 430 wickednesses together, and we come up with something really good. 10,000 pages every year. I mean, so much goodness. And this is only the federal government. I'm not going to be speaking about what comes out of Austin, what comes out of, what's the capital of New Mexico? Santa Fe, you know, and, and all the other states. That idea is a new idea. Before the Enlightenment, Europe had no legislative government. Why? There was only one legislator, God. Before that also, in those days, Europe had no executive government. We today look at kings of those days as, as if they were an executive government. They were not. Kings were a judicial government, the highest court of the nation. Just like in the Bible, you see before the kings, you see prophet Samuel was the highest court in the nation. All the courts had to lead up to him. He was not telling people what to do with their business. He was not telling them what to do with their property. He was not telling them what to do with their education, with their kids, and so on. He was only there when there was a problem, and the lower courts could not resolve the problem, they would go up. And that's what Jethro advised Moses. Instead of you being the only judge in this nation, appoint men at the lowest levels, um, uh, judges of 10, judges of 50, judges of hundreds, and only if they cannot solve the problems, only then they should bring the worst cases up to you. Solomon, the most powerful king in Israel, when he stood before God in his dream, and God asked him, what do you want of me? I want riches? I can give you all the riches in the world. Solomon said, no. I'm not excited by riches. But this nation is a, is a huge nation. And I'm a small man. I want to I be, be the guy who judges them righteously. Give me the wisdom to judge them righteously. That's what the kings were. Europe did not have executive government. Because every family was an executive government. Every local community was an executive government. They had, executive, they had local communities that managed themselves and kings had no power over them. <clears throat> For example, if you look at, uh, I mean, they had separate provinces that managed themselves. Villages had their own laws and their own you know, uh, people who managed them. <clears throat> they had uh, merchant guilds. They had cities independent of the rulers. 
they had even local uh, communities, local villages that controlled mountain passes, and they were independent of those kings. I mean, have you ever looked at a map of Europe? You know, those little, tiny, uh, like Liechtenstein, and uh, Andorra, San Marino, uh, Monaco. Ever thought, how come these guys have all these little states, and, and where, do they, where do they originate from? The truth is they originate from, from, from a time when every little community was self-governing and those communities were very important because they controlled mountain passes. And kings left them alone because they expected them to maintain the mountain passes and they said, we're not touching you guys, don't, don't swear any loyalty. In fact, Andorra is a very interesting case because Andorra swears loyalty, it's an independent state who swear loyalty, the, 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 the head of the state in Andorra are two guys, a bishop on the Spanish side, even today, a bishop on the, a bishop on the Spanish side, and a French governor of the nearby province in France on the other side. But it's still an independent government. I mean, they're like heads of state, but they, they have no executive power whatsoever. It applies to San Marino as well, which is in Italy, and it's just the whole, the whole country is a small castle. <clears throat> and they're an independent state. Europe had no executive government in the hands of the state, and Europe had no legislative government in the hands of the state. Executive government belonged to the families, legislative government belonged to God. The kings and the civil government was just judicial. That is a huge difference between what we have today. Why? The only time a free man is subject to the government when the government is strictly judiciary is when he is a criminal. Outside of him being a criminal, he has absolutely no obligation to obey any government agent, be it local cop, okay, be it an IRS agent, be it, be it the President of the United States or his Secret Service, he has absolutely no obligation. That's what Europe was at the time. Talking about liberty, we don't know anything about liberty today. That was liberty. So the biblical government is a judiciary government. It is a restrained government. It is a government that is passive. It is a government that is only triggered into action by somebody's crime. Outside of people's crimes, that government has absolutely no power whatsoever. Now this leads us to the following question. Do we have such executive government today that actually controls non-criminal individuals? That actually has power over non-criminal individuals? You bet. And I'm going to start talking about these institutions now. And you may be stung in your heart about some of them, but bear with me. Because everything I say here is not based on because I don't like the people in these institutions, but because the law of God rejects that kind of government in principle. <clears throat> the first and most prominent institution we have today, and we have been we have idolized it, is standing armies. Now don't get me wrong, I'm a military guy. Most of my friends are military people. We just kind of sniff each other miles away. You know, I can see a person walking down the street and I can tell you, He's been in the military. <clears throat> the founding fathers of the United States detested the very concept of a standing army. Why? For them, a standing army was a satanic government. They included it in their Declaration of Independence, that the king sent his officers and they quartered in people's homes. <clears throat> Well, they don't quarter in our homes anymore, but they take our taxes to fight their wars abroad. We're not becoming freer by taking down some dictator out there. Although, I'm all for taking down dictators. I've lived under a dictator. 
I know what a dictatorship is. But sending our sons and daughters to fight, to take down a dictator, and in fact, we're not even taking down dictators. We're basically building the company's wealth out there. It's not a biblical thing. But we got to go even farther back and think, how did America come to a point where we have standing armies and we have such a huge standing army that doesn't even protect American territory? Why are we protecting somebody else's territory? Because we have a government that, decide, that it has decided it's a god and it has its own goals, its own purposes, and its own objectives that are different from our goals and objectives and are different from what God has for this country. We have destroyed other people's lives. We have destroyed other people's countries. Their countries were not perfect before that. But they're certainly worse today. We have not done it in the name of justice. We have done it in the name of political expediency. Only God has the right to, send, to, to sacrifice people's lives for his expediency. When a government decides that it wants to sacrifice human lives, this is human sacrifice and it's idolatry. <clears throat> and how about the standing army that we have today on our streets, around our homes, in our neighborhoods, small towns, and the inner cities, the standing army of police. That's a tough question for most Christians. <clears throat> I mean, our cops are different. Maybe. The concept of police is not. The concept of having a standing army outside your door, being able to control you anywhere you go, just like uh, that sheriff of Milwaukee, David Clark, that conservative celebrity, on, even though he is 100% liberal and Democrat, shown on Fox News, and he says, when police says you're going to jail, you're going to jail. Since when is America a communist country? I thought judges decide if we go to jail or not. I thought we were a country of law. So now we're not a country of the rule of law, we're a country of the whim of a cop. So any cop out there thinks that they can point a gun at you and take you to jail. And we have that not from liberals, we have that not from CNN or MSNBC or not from Obama, we have it from Fox News. And you know, all Christians are, yeah, whatever Fox News says, this is what Christianity, this is what the Christian idea is. And we have agreed with it. We have supported our cops. Our judges support them. I mean, it's much easier to murder a person and get away with it if you're a cop. I mean, a cop can pull out his gun, and normally if a private person pulls out his gun, I have the right to pull, pull out my gun and and kill him, right? Because you don't draw a gun in public. But a cop can draw a gun in public with no reason whatsoever and he's protected completely. That standing army of police appeared, in fact, that's a very interesting development. I had a podcast recently, and I'll tell you here. <clears throat> Europe, had n Europe did not have prevention of crime before the Enlightenment. That idea came out of the Enlightenment. In the Bible, you don't have the government preventing crime. Why? Because in order to prevent crime, you have to be able to read the mind of a person. You have, to look, you have to be able to look at that person and being able to decide if he is a criminal or not. The very concept of suspect, that somebody who the, the cops think may commit crime, is not biblical. It, 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 it's not even American. It appeared only in the last 50 years in America, just to give just justification for, for what they do. <clears throat> During the Enlightenment, those French philosophers decided that they can come up with the idea just human society can be controlled just the way we control the natural world around, it, around us, 
I mean, there are natural laws that control that world, and, and there are the same natural mathematical laws that control human society. And they decided that if we just learn those laws, we can have an institution, an elite institution, that will be like a standing army that will be able to apply these laws in practice and prevent crime. And eventually, this, this grew in the concept of police, an institution that has an executive authority, an executive privilege of controlling your life to prevent crime. Well, how do you feel about it today? Crime is prevented? Alexis, did, uh, America didn't have professional police for the first two generations of its existence. The founding fathers would have, uh, would have been disgusted at the very concept. The first professional police in America was organized in, of all places, in New York City under the corrupt Democrat government of Tammany Hall. And guess what they did for the first 70 years of their existence? They milked the whorehouses and the gambling houses on the, in, the New York, in the port of New York. Well, they've become better today, I mean, more righteous today. They milk everybody today. <laughs> America did not have a professional police. Alexis, do talk well. I, I don't know if, if you've read that book. I mean, you've got to read that book. Uh, I know you heard that for the first time from me. <laughs> but you've got to read his book, written back in the 1830s. This guy is a French guy who wrote a book, Democracy in America. He did a tour around America writing as a European about how America looks like. He loved America, and he gave, them, gave an amazing account of what America was at the time. <clears throat> and it was, it was amazing for Europeans at the time, but I bet it's going to be amazing for you today. And in there, he talks about <clears throat> uh, uh, police in America. By that time, France had a fully developed professional police because that police was developed in the French Revolution a generation earlier. That was the first police in Europe. And he talks about America, and he says, there's no professional police. And yet, his words, hardly a crime is left unresolved and unpunished. This is not the words of somebody like me. This guy's not even committed Protestant Christian. He's a Frenchman. And he looked at America and he thought, these guys don't even have cops, and yet, hardly a crime is left unsolved and unpunished. Most of America didn't have police for a long time. Big cities started organizing those police groups, police departments. Most of America didn't have police. We had sheriffs. But sheriffs were not an executive authority. Sheriffs were agents of the courts. Sheriffs were just serving warrants. But anybody could serve a warrant. The symbol of America's law enforcement at the time was not the sheriff with a uniform. They didn't have a uniform. But was that, was that poster on the wall that said wanted and then a sum underneath. What did that mean? Anybody. Any man with a gun, which meant every man, could go after that guy on the picture and make money out of either killing him or returning him to court. That was the symbol of America's law enforcement. And hardly a crime remained unsolved and unpunished. There is a picture on the internet that I posted several weeks ago and, and this is a gathering of Texas sheriffs back in, I think, 1920s. And when you look at that picture, you see about 120, 150 people, 150 sheriffs. You know, all of them, you know, man, real Texas man. But there's something interesting about that picture. Not a single one of them is in a uniform. And not a single one of them is armed better than any average citizen on the street. 
they did not look at themselves as a special standing army to control the population. They looked at themselves as just another citizen who is just paid to serve warrants. Now, if, if, if you want to if you want to object to that warrant, and if you want to object with a gun against a warrant, now that's a problem. And everybody can kill you if you object with a gun to the warrant. But the sheriff was paid to serve warrants. That was his job. Not to maintain order. The whole concept of security and order was not given to the government to start with. We today say, well, we expect the government to give us safety, to give us security. How would the founding fathers feel about us wanting us today, their children, wanting us, uh, wanting today to have security and safety? What did they say? Those who sacrifice liberty for safety get neither. And today we have them not only in uniforms, like they're a standing army on our streets. Every single sheriff in America today is compromised. We believe they're local. They're not local anymore. Every single sheriff in America is waiting in line to get government handouts in the form of military equipment. Federal government handouts. They may tell you that they're local. They may tell you they're serving the community. If that sheriff has one piece of military equipment that makes him better armed than any average citizen in your community, that sheriff is compromised. He is not a local sheriff anymore. He is a government henchman, a federal government henchman, because he doesn't need that equipment. The only reason he needs that equipment is to make sure that he's got a superior firepower to you. What about tax agencies? What is the whole idea of a tax agency? That your executive power as a business owner, as a father, as a, as a, just as a free man or a free woman in this society, must not be allowed to make decisions for yourself. You're not allowed to have your executive power. Part of what you produce must be returned back to the government because the government really owns it and the government is supposed to make decisions with it. When did tax agencies appear? In the 1920s. You want to be a real conservative? Well, let's go real conservative, okay? Before the 1920s. Let's just tell them we're not paying anymore. Let's just make our local officials say we're not paying anymore. You got to tell Washington, D.C. We will support our local activities with our voluntary contributions, but we're not paying taxes anymore. We've got to get to that point, eventually. Remember what our founding fathers rebelled about? <clears throat> Sin taxes and prohibitions. Sin taxes. You know what a syntax is, right? Now, not a syntax like, like uh, something of the language, language arts. Syntax. Taxes on alcohol. Taxes on drugs. Taxes on uh, tobacco. And so on. Ever thought of that? That, uh, that only a god will try to do something to reach into your heart to make you a better person. Ever thought about the, 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 the idolatry of prohibitions? Any prohibitions? I mean, I'm not saying that getting drunk is necessarily a good thing. It's a sin. Intoxicated with any kind of drugs or alcohol is sin. But a government controlling you, controlling what you put in your body, whether it's cocaine or marijuana or crack or sugar, sugar yeah, <laughs> glue. 
those syntaxes and prohibitions actually when they started I mean it is not it is not a simple uh, it, it is not just a simple coincidence that at the same time the Federal Reserve was established the first tax agencies in the United States were established and the first anti-drug laws in the United States were established and the welfare system was established at the same time I usually tell people that tell me everything went downhill starting in the 60s in the 60s we had the communists like a communist revolution here in the United States and we had the Democrats and doing all this stuff and I said if you and I usually tell people if you think that you really don't know history because the real communist revolution in the United States did not happen in the 1960s or the 1970s it happened in the 1920s and then we all look at our kids and say yeah this is really a worthless generation and let me remind you that our fathers elected Franklin Delano Roosevelt for four terms talking about a worthless generation that was the guy who completed the communist generation the communist revolution in the United States the second communist revolution was done by a Texan Lyndon Johnson Government education, another executive institution in the United States, that we just leave it alone because our schools are different. What is a government education? We're going to teach your kids to be good, what, citizens? Good citizens of what? Of the state. It is not by chance that one of the planks, one of the ten planks of Karl Marx about the establishment of communism is exactly that destruction of all forms of private education and establishment of free government education for all the children in a communist state you think your schools are different they're just as different as your cops are different yeah for a while some of them may hold out against you know some government encroach encroachments but what you need to do is look at the grants that they receive Recently, a, um, an, I, uh, an ISD, a, a school district uh, superintendent in Texas, was kind of publicly said if that order from Obama about uh, 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 the bathrooms, you know, girls' bathrooms comes, and I'm just going to put it in the shredder and so on. And I'm thinking, don't play the macho. You know, you're going to keep that order because a couple of weeks later, what's going to come is your application for federal grants okay and that application for federal grants is going to be a good nice chunk of money and we all know that you're going to put your name under it and the moment you put your name under it it will come back to you with the same order and you'll have to sign that order and you're not going to find the power you're not going to find the moral strength to not sign that order because we'll be talking about millions of dollars because government education is entirely, and you've got to read a book about that, okay? I'll try to restrain myself, okay, but, but I can't. A same name, R.J. Rushdoony. R-U-S-H-D-O-O-N-Y. The messianic character of American education the messianic character of American education like messianic like Messiah he goes to the spring he goes to the fountain of all these ideas of modern American education and he quotes from one person after another that the govern that government education in the United States from the very beginning was designed not to teach the children what they needed to know but to make them into obedient slaves to the state to take them away from the parents and to make them wards of the state that's the real purpose of government education the real part of that executive state that tries to build itself into a god economic regulations of subsidies 
Now, let's look at economic regulations. When we go to Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, we see a description of what man is. A lot of people are, a lot of philosophers have been working on the issue of what is man. And they try to define man by something that man has in himself that is like some passive state. Like man is, is defined by his brain or by his thinking or by his heart and so on. God defines man not by what man is, but what man is supposed and created to do. Look at this. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and, and this is your description of man, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, and in case they have not gotten the message, he repeats it. <clears throat> Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue, And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, in case he didn't get the message, God gave him the first task in the garden. Chapter 2, after pretty much repeating uh, some of the stuff specifically about the creation of man and kind of breaking it down. First created the man, then the woman, and uh, you know, the, the only creature not created out of dust is the woman. Um, so, and he goes into verse 15 before the creation of the woman. And, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, the words here in Hebrew are rather different. Dress it is just the word for servant. It is Sabbat, just, just the word for slave, servant. That means man was put in the garden to serve it, which means to work on it. And the second one is to keep it. And keep is shamar, which is a military term, and means watch over it. Like th that's where the name Samaria comes from, the city of uh, the, the capital of northern Israel. Uh, during the divided kingdom, Samaria, which meant the watchtower of Yah, of Yahweh, the watchtower of God. <clears throat> so it's a military term. So this verse basically says that man was created for two things, work and war. Okay? The individual man was created for these two things, <clears throat> work and war. Ever thought about the funny, I know man have noticed that, and I'm sure a lot of women have noticed that as well. Ever thought about the fact that it, it's kind of every time you, you, you have a gun in your hand, it, look, it, it feels like, a, like a, a, some kind of working tool, and every time you have a working tool in your hand, it feels like a, like a weapon? <laughs> it's like they're interchangeable, and, and boy, they, they are interchangeable. People have fought with agricultural weapons, you know, pitchforks. Right? It's just the same thing. Man was created for two things. One was to expand, to, to, to increase the capital of what he was given. That's what the word work means. You take something, you capitalize on it. Right? It's funny when people ask me about my kids, you know, being homeschooled. Well, what about socialization? I say, I'm not a socialist. I don't care about socialization. But I do want to capitalize them. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right? So one is expanding that capital. The other one is protecting that capital from being destroyed. And that was given to the individual man. Now, folks, any government that is trying to take away from you as an individual the power to do work or war of your own is a satanic government. 
Because the attack at man as what he is, is in this specific verse. If we want to deprive, if we, if we want to deprive man of his image, of, of his uh, image of God, we want to destroy the image of God in him, we've got to destroy his ability to do work, and we've got to destroy his ability to do war. And that's what they're doing. And economic regulations are exactly this thing, depriving you of the ability to do work. Something that God commanded man, the government says, no, you're not allowed to do that unless we give you the permit to do that. We're not going to allow you to build a house unless you come and worship us. We're not going to allow you to work as an engineer unless you come and worship us. We're not going to allow the Mexican whom you want to hire on your field to come over unless he, you worship the government and he worships the government. We're not going to allow your kids that are younger than 16 to work and learn to be responsible stewards over the creation unless you come and worship us. The whole system of government economic regulations in this country has one religion behind it. Destroy the image of God in man by stopping man from doing exactly that task of work. That's why it is very important. This is actually one very easy way for us to, 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 to resist the government today. And that is ignore economic regulations. Ignore economic. I ignore them all the time. But then I'm from Eastern Europe. I'm used to ignoring the government. <laughs> Subsidies. What are subsidies? Within that Dominion Covenant, the idea was that growth will come only through obedient, responsible labor before God. There was no other way to achieve more capital, better life, and so on. In fact, the original sin was Adam and Eve trying to achieve things that they should have achieved after years of responsible laboring before God. They wanted to have that knowledge that only comes with obedience and many years. You know how an English lawn uh, is, is made, right? You, you, you mow it, you, you water it, you mow it, you water it 400 years. <laughs> Right. It's the 400 years that, that matters. The other stuff is easy. You all know, especially living in this part of the world, you all know what it means to build a wealth in the family. You work and you work and you work and you work and you add a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and your kids continue adding a little bit and a little bit because that's what, how wealth is built. That is how true wealth is built. Because those that built wealth in other ways, their kids do not know how to preserve it and protect it, and they squander it. But if you want to leave a world of, if you want to leave a knowledge and a responsibility for your kids and an understanding of responsibility for your kids, you've got to be working, adding a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, with every single day. This is how wealth is built. What are economic subsidies? The government is our God walking on earth, telling specific people, we offer you a shortcut. Are you a farmer? We're concerned that you're not going to become rich as those guys in the city. We're going to take their money, give them to you, give you subsidies, so you can, we can make you as rich as they are. Economic subsidies have destroyed American agriculture more than any competition from abroad, folks. Because they have destroyed the very culture of being responsible stewards. Because that, because that culture is what builds wealth. And when we look at American agriculture, 
keep in mind that it is nowhere close to where it is supposed to be. We still have a lot of the old uh, cowboy ethic, work ethic, where you're out there in the sun and so on, you know, in the scorching sun or, or in the cold and working on the, on the fields. But it's nowhere even near. America shouldn't be importing food, and not because we should close our borders. America shouldn't be importing food, period, if our agriculture was anywhere close to what it's supposed to be. The problem is we have destroyed it because we have allowed the government to put money into it. And what did it destroy? What, what happens to your kids when you give them stuff without them working for it? You destroy their soul. American agriculture, uh, uh, the soul of American agriculture was destroyed in the last 70 or 80 years. The inner cities of America were destroyed in the same way. The inner cities of America were much better. And I'm talking about exactly the minorities in the inner cities. <clears throat> they were destroyed in exactly the same way. Thomas Sowell has a, a very good, uh, uh, a, a very good uh, actually, treatment on that and study on that. The inner cities were destroyed not because the blacks didn't know what to do. In fact, they had many successful businesses at the time. The unemployment rate among young black males was much lower than among young white males, especially after World War I. Because young white males were taken to, to war, black males were not enlisted in the army. They had the time to be here and actually develop it. What destroyed them was when in the 60s they were given subsidies to raise their level, and especially the subsidy of the minimum wage. You know, that helped them a lot, right? You, we see where they are today. And how about the Federal Reserve? Another executive institution. What's the purpose of the Federal Reserve? Well, you know what God did from the very beginning. He created something out of nothing. And what is, what is the Federal Reserve? It is an institution that is supposed to do what? To create wealth out of nothing. There's no gold standard. Yeah. But we have more dollars, and we're wealthier, much wealthier, right? I mean, look at, look at the price of houses today. I mean, in, in, in the earlier days, you could work for like five years and buy a house. How about today? I mean, we're looking at our kids and we're telling our kids that you're worthless, we had it much worse. Let's be honest with our kids. They have it worse. We've left the world of false gods for them and those false gods have destroyed their wealth and their ability to produce wealth. And in addition, in many cases, we're destroying their soul by teaching them to obey these gods. Immigration restrictions. Oh, that's going to be a tough one. That's going to be a tough one. Because it has become a sacred cow of American conservatives that our borders must be closed, must be secured, and so on. Who's the first proponent in Europe of immigration restrictions? Anybody knows? You know the name, though. Karl Marx. The very concept of immigration restrictions came out of the idea that foreign workers compete with domestic workers for certain jobs. And the idea behind it that is that the jobs in the economy are a collective property. You, you cannot understand the concept of immigration restrictions unless you understand that there is a hidden religious concept, economic concept behind it, and that is the jobs in the economy are collective property. Collective property is at the foundation of the concept of immigration restrictions. The law of God did not include any agency for immigration restrictions or immigration regulations. The United States Constitution, as imperfect as it is, did not include any powers of the federal government to control immigration. <clears throat> the only place where it controls immigration is 
the migration of slaves in Article 9. But in Article 8, where it lists the powers of Congress, it does not list immigration. It lists naturalization, which means your ability to vote, which I'm okay with that. We don't change anything by voting today anyway. Um, the United States was a uh, was a open borders country until the 19, until 1920, and pastors preached in favor of open borders because there were a lot of socialists and, and um, uh, trade union groups that wanted immigration restrictions back in the 1870s and 1880s, and pastors preached against it. In fact, anybody heard? of that phrase, this nation is a, is, is a Christian nation, pronounced by the, by, in, a, in an opinion by the Supreme Court in 1892. Anybody knows what the case is? An immigration case where a church sued the United States government for not allowing a preacher from England to immigrate to the United States based on some ideas about immigration restrictions. The church sued, the Church of Holy Trinity sued the United States government and the case went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the church against immigration restrictions and part of that opinion, part of that decision, in the opinion it said, this nation is a Christian nation. This is where it came from. Americans believed in open borders for, for a long time. Texas kept its borders open all the way until 1954. And in fact, Texas wouldn't have closed its borders if it, if it wasn't for that champion of liberty, General Eisenhower, who took the troops who were returning from Europe in the 1950s and sent them to Texas to impose immigration restrictions on Texas. And they would take, they would take even Hispanics that were born in Texas and send them deep into the, into the desert in the Sonora Mountains to die. At least 300 people died. <clears throat> I have three lectures online. That, uh, I, I cannot develop it too great, but you gotta understand, and you gotta listen to those lectures to see the whole point. The Bible does not allow the civil government to control the movement of non-criminal individuals. <clears throat> the United States Constitution does not allow any government to control the movement of non-criminal individuals. And honestly, from an economic perspective, it is extremely stupid to believe that it helps the United States of America to have closed borders. <clears throat> to the contrary, more and more immigration restrictions in the United States have become restrictions on us as American citizens than on the foreigners. Because more and more, you're supposed to ask of your employees all kinds of stuff, social security number, this permit, that permit, because the rule is what you want the government to do to the foreigner, it will eventually do to you. And that's what's been happening to America. And I'm sure there are people around here that remember those days that you didn't even have to have a driver's license to drive a car. Okay. And they're preparing, they're, they're preparing to, to get to a point where you can't even fly from Tucumcari to uh, you know, Amarillo unless you have a passport, right? Because we wanted them to do it to the foreigner, and they do it to us today. Welcome to your executive government. And the Bible says the same law that applies to you must apply to the stranger. If he's a criminal, don't send him out, don't deport him, take him to court. If he's not a criminal, leave him alone. If he finds a job, <clears throat> he finds a job. If he starves, although I haven't seen a starving Mexican. If he finds a job, he finds a job. If somebody wants to hire him, somebody wants to hire him. It should be none of your business. Because jobs don't belong to you, don't belong to us as a collective. Jobs belong to the business owner by, you know, God's decision and God's uh, verdict. I can continue on and on and on and on <clears throat> with what we have today as, uh, as government. But I want to 
uh, say is, is this about what the biblical government is, and we'll talk in the next lecture uh, what biblical government is and, uh, and, and how we get there. The biblical government is a judicial government. And it is based first on self-government. And that self-government actually is given in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, hidden in a larger passage, there is a gem, a political statement by Paul. The head of every man is Christ. The direct political authority over every man is not his pastor, not the cops on the street, not the president, but Christ. And any political doctrine, and any political system that places anybody else over the head of a man who hasn't committed any crime is a satanic system. And we as Christians must do everything in our power to oppose it and resist. God bless you.